Hi, Sarah Hesla. Hi, Nancy Rabelman. Sarah, you've got a different background than you usually have. Um, why don't you tell our listeners where you are? Nancy, you'll never believe where I am. Where? Woman in extended stay America, about five miles away from the Fairfax County Courthouse in Virginia. And and why would that be a place you'd want to go, Sarah Hefla? <laughs> that is a good follow-up question <laughs> to that information. Well, A, because I'm cheap, but B, because it is very close to the white hot center of culture, which is the Depp Heard trial. The Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial is happening five miles away from me. One of the funniest parts of this whole experience has been discovering how few people I interact with have any idea that that trial is taking place. Oh, you mean like in your family or, or no, I mean, when I landed at the airport at Reagan airport in DC and I went to the Avis counter and I talked to the guy, I was like, he's like, what are you doing in town? And I was like, I'm here to cover the Depp herd trial. And he was like, the what now? And I was like, Oh, see in, in my street. And we'll explain why this is not the case. Cause it's actually really not a media circus. I, I, I still was under the impression that like all he's probably interacted with all these different journalists and people coming into town for this. And I was like the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. And he was like, tell me more. And then he goes, you mean Johnny Depp, the actor? And I was like, yes. And he's like, he's suing somebody. And I was like, yes. And he's like, here. Yes. Okay. Fast forward to when I check into my extended stay America, this darling, young, maybe like 22-year-old woman is behind the counter. She's checking me in. She's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, I'm here for the Depp Heard trial. And she's like, again, blank stare. And I go, Johnny Depp suing his ex-wife. And she goes, Johnny Depp is in town? And she starts kind of like freaking out. I'm like, yeah, he's like five miles away. And she goes, oh my God, oh my God. And I go, do you like Johnny Depp? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, how do you know him? And she's like, well, pirates. And I'm like, right. And then as I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's five miles down. I'd just been to the courthouse that afternoon. And as I'm doing this, this bro comes by heading to the elevator. And he goes, the Depp Hurt trial is here? And I go, yeah. And he goes, oh, I thought it was like in LA. So he knew about it, but he had no idea that it was here. And he goes, so like, I can go to it? And I go, yeah, you can physically go to the courthouse. It's like a very calm scene during the day. You cannot get into the trial unless you like sleep there overnight, which we can talk about later. And he's like, oh, that's okay. He's like, I just want a picture of the courthouse. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go take a selfie in front of the courthouse. It's literally five miles away. He's like, I cannot believe that. Meanwhile, the woman behind the counter is still going like, she's like still fanning herself. She's like, Johnny Depp is in my town. You have to understand Fairfax, Virginia is not, it's a quaint little town. I still haven't like really drilled into like what is here. It's just like this cute little town that's 30 minutes away 
for, or like 45, depending on traffic, I think it's like 30 miles away from the Reagan airport. And I'm going to say like, not a lot happens here. So the idea that the biggest trial going on in the country is happening five miles away has somehow not filtered to the people of Fairfax, Virginia. Do we know why it's happening in that venue? Why that location? So, so what I know is that because he is suing the Washington, he's suing her over the Washington Post piece. Oh, the trial has to take place in the jurisdiction of the Washington Post. Why Fairfax County? I don't know. Okay. Okay. And what's so strange and interesting is the complete absence of Washington Post from this trial. Well, um, he had he didn't have very good success when he was uh, suing the British papers. It was the Sun, is that correct? That's right. And he also wanted one of the things about the UK trial was that because he was suing the Sun, certain things about their relationship couldn't be surfaced. So there wasn't as much discovery, what's known as discovery. So if he sued the Washington Post, um, first of all, he's going to have a really hard time with that, but he wouldn't be able to summon a lot of these different, you know, bring in all these audio recordings and different aspects of their relationship. So he wanted to target her. But one of the interesting things that's come up is, so when she writes that piece in 2016, it has 26, 26. 28. The Washington 20, Post piece was 2018. 18. Yeah, yeah, it's Thank all right. Thank you very much. No problem. I got so many dates floating around in my head because all these fights and th- I was trying to build a timeline last night. She writes it in 2018. It runs in the Washington Post proper, in other words, the print publication, with the headline, A Transformative Moment for Women or something like that. Like some really boring print headline. But the headline that runs on the internet is something that's more like, I survived sexual violence and you can too, or something like that. Well, one of the points of contention here, you know, Amber Heard makes the point in the courtroom that she didn't write that headline. Which is true. And I've heard a lot of commentators, and I spoke to people at the courthouse yesterday, they were very skeptical of this claim. Well, you and I can can assure people, writers don't write their headlines. No, I mean, occasionally you can suggest something, which is fine, and they might use it, but no, you definitely, and it, okay, first of all, and it's so many steps away, first of all, Amber Heard didn't even write this piece, so she's definitely not going to write the headline, right? Exactly. I, I do wonder, I'm just going to dogleg here for one second, I wonder if, uh, and, I, and I know that there's a lot of like emotional stuff here, and this is still ex-spouses going at each other, but like, did Johnny Depp, he, he wasn't going to sue the Washington Post, but did he ever consider suing the ACLU, since they're the ones that wrote the piece? That's a really interesting question, and I would be curious to know if he was aware That's right. of the extent to which they had basically just written it themselves. Yeah. You know, I think going into this, he probably thought she wrote it with a PR team like we did. 
Exactly. Um, and, and we should and, just add that the, the ACL just recently in the past couple of weeks has come out and admit that they were the ones that wrote the piece. Um, and I think if I'm getting my chronology right, like they wanted to write this piece and sort of recruited her to be the person that would be the the sort of figurehead for this piece. Am I, am I getting that right? Or was it that they were specifically interested in Amber Heard because of what had happened with the sun or because like they, they wanted to like in, in, in quotes, they wanted to, you know, speak her truth or was it that they had the truth they wanted to speak and she was going to be the person that was going to be the spokesperson? I actually haven't watched the ACLU testimony. It's one of the few, you know, parts of the the trial that I need to go back and watch later. So I don't really know the specifics, but okay. let's say this, which is that they came up with it. They, you know, they wanted to put a message out there. She was either already working with them because of her commitment to give them part of her divorce settlement. Remember, you know, she pledged all 7 million of her divorce settlement to both the ACLU and a children's hospital. Of course, one of the things that comes out is that she's paid very little of this. This is so icky. I mean, this is like you lift the lid off of this like bandage and there's just this festering, gross bacteria under there. Now, she will claim the reason she hasn't done that is because she was going to do it in installments for tax purposes. It was recommended to her to do it in installments. And she had done an installment, of course, so had Elon Musk and so had Johnny Depp. But then Johnny Depp sues her. um, And now her money needs to go to legal expenses. So she doesn't have money. However, you know, the cross-examination, which has been fairly brutal, has really brought up that this timeline doesn't really shake out. Like if that's what she was going to do, she was already kind of behind on these payments. But the ACLU is a part of this trial. There was a deposition for, for them to basically say, we wrote it. But so, so, all, so one of the, the interesting things about this story is the story itself never mentions sexual violence. But the headline does. The headline on the internet. Oh. And so... One way to get past this would be for Amber Heard to just sit there and say, yeah, I never wrote that. Let's bring in the Washington Post guy that says I didn't write it and let's be done now. But that's not what happened. What Amber Heard says is, yeah, I didn't write that headline. However, there's like five to 10 wild allegations of sexual violence that I can levy against my ex and I'm going to unfold them in court. So we do get a number of sexual violence allegations that she had never spoken about before. This assault with, uh, alleged assault with a wine bottle is one of them. Um, the cavity, like, uh, cavity is such a gross word. The, the search in her vagina, the search in her vagina for cocaine. What? That's the name of my next book. The search in her vagina for the cocaine. What? Um, anyway, let's not get let's not get stuck there. But there, but so my point is that like she kind of comes back and says, "Okay, I didn't put any allegations of sexual violence in there, but but if I had, it would be correct because X Y Z." And so and so sorry, just to stop you. So all of these things. I'm not familiar with the case in 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 London. I think it was London where he sued the son because they called him a wife beater, um, and he lost that case. 
it during that case are any of the things that she's claiming now the cavity search the rape no. of the wine bottle none no. of those were or was it was that germane to the trial? Was she being asked, do you know, to... to well, no, because the whole, the whole trial was about wife beater, the word wife beater. Got it. Okay. And so the whole thing pivots around physical abuse. Okay. And it didn't have this, this element of sexual engagement as well as, you know, this, this idea of did she possibly also enact violence against him? So, so one just, of the yeah, things that just, starts happening. Okay, it was it, around, it was a, it was a different thing. He's suing her now, so obviously all of her details, right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. And so one of my questions has been, you know, because the only place they have this allegation of sexual violence is in the headline. She says she didn't write the headline, which, as we know, is journalistic practice. So why isn't the Washington Post editor? coming in to say, yeah, I wrote that headline. And here's why I think that's not happening. Because while the Washington Post wrote that headline, they ran it by her or her team for approval. Because I can tell you as an editor at a publication, I would never change a headline to something that saucy with a high profile client and not get permission from them not get clearance. Also remember the Washington Post had lawyers on this. So they had to legally vet this thing because they know that they've got liability. So I would be very surprised. Like I think I think the Washington Post doesn't come in to answer questions about this and the Washington Post has been very silent on this whole issue. Yeah. Meaning the trial itself. You know what I think is which is taking place in the neighborhood of the one of the nation's largest newspapers. So as we know, the ACL wrote, you wrote this letter or this opinion piece and it's the ACLU. So they're going to be extremely, and we know they were extremely careful in the piece to not name Depp specifically as someone that did this. Like they, they, they wrote around it. They wrote it, it with, with a lawyer's mind with a lawyer's mind so that they couldn't get stuck. So they couldn't get sued. Right. So now, now the piece is going to run. It's probably been, you know, vetted up the yin yang. And now the Washington post says, okay, we're going to give it this headline. And, and of course they ran it by, um, well, of course, but we're going to assume that they did because that's the way the stuff works. They run it by whoever was submitting it at the, at the, at the ACLU and ACLU thinks to themselves, well, yeah, cause we couldn't actually say it like in the piece, but we'll let, we'll let the, the Washington Post stand out in there and let them take the heat. But it's also kind of like, it's giving us the juice we kind of want, but we're not responsible for it. Does that make sense? Maybe well, because remember the Me Too movement is about sexual violence. It's not specifically about domestic abuse. You know, the issue of domestic violence had been in the culture for quite some time. It really had like a big moment in the 80s. And, you know, yes, that is sort of under the umbrella of Me Too. But if you want the clicks and you want the heat, you need that word sex somewhere in there. Right. And I think you've made a very good point about, you know, a kind of sleight of hand going on with these different organizations. And, and 
you know, by the way, Amber Heard tweeted this story with that online headline, which bizarrely on the stand, she like, somebody's like, did you know this was the headline? And she's like, I really didn't know that until this trial, which huh. is unfathomable to me. And oh. also like she tweeted it. Now, granted, people are not paying attention and she may not even run her own Twitter account. But also, you know, when you tweet something, sometimes you're you're looking at it. And then when you tweet it, when it comes directly from the site, sometimes it has a different headline. You know, maybe she this read it right. in the paper and maybe she didn't even look. I mean, um, I'd like to just add one more thing here talking about like how how kind of awful this is. Listeners should remember that this piece was timed to come out with the release of the Amber Heard film. Uh, what was it? Uh, Aquaman. Aquaman. And this is like very specifically, the, the ACLU said this, I believe, in their deposition. I believe they did. Yeah. Say, well, we, we timed it. So, you know, it was just like, let's have all of these cultural moments ping to make a bigger splash. No no pun intended there. Um, which I, I just find, I mean, we're, again, I mean, I, I, for me, because it's my true north, people, people using, um, using pain, using misery as, as a commodity to further their own agenda just strikes me as so beyond disgusting when you have people, even maybe if it's you actually suffering these things, but let's do this now so that it makes my movie a little more popular. I I'm so, so an interesting moment in the trial is when her attorney asks her, about the timing issue, which had come out in that ACLU conversation and says, you know, do you think that the people behind Aquaman was this part of the publicity campaign? And she's like, you know, respectfully, I think Aquaman had plenty of juice behind it. It became like the most popular, I don't know, like DC movie. And she, she said some things that were surprising to me because I actually never really paid attention to Aquaman. Um, but that means nothing. Um, and she says, you know, I don't think they cared about this. Well, that may be true. The people behind Aquaman probably did have a bigger marketing push than oh. a piece in the Washington Post. Oh, however, sure. however, there is no question that the Washington Post and the ACLU were using Aquaman and her adjacency to it to, to leverage eyeballs, popularity, clout, for this piece. A hundred percent. I'm not blaming me. Absolutely. It's definitely not the, the Aquaman. People are probably like, whatever, like, oh, whatever. whatever. It's, it's about, it is about, you know, ACLU, Washington Post, and also Amber Heard's personal star. You know, she, this was a moment, we have to remember it's November, 2018. Me Too is burning it i don't think there's ever been a moment when it was burning hotter than that month of that year why and, that month why do you say that well the harvey weinstein stuff had come out and i mean it had come out the year before i i don't remember why i'm saying this i remember we were we i was doing some podcasting about this myself just so many people were getting mowed down and set on fire. It, it, it had just built up enough momentum that people felt either A, they could come forward with the stories that they'd never come forward with of having been abused by powerful people, or they saw it was a it was their chance to have a moment of um uh, to 
bring somebody down, uh, whether through um, very serious allegations or because they wanted to be part of this movement too. I mean, we we have to remember people like feeling like they're, it's not interesting to me to feel like I want to be part of a movement. Actually, I frankly don't want to ever do that with any movement, but people did. This was a moment where, where people were coming together for solidarity. And I just think in my memory, it was a very, very, very hot time for this. And it seems to me that she was also going to get in on this. Yeah, me too. Me too. And and these horrible things have happened. And if it had happened with the dry cleaner down the street, it would not have been a story. But it was with a worldwide superstar. And it was a moment. And it's worth mentioning that a lot of the tabloid drama and clamor around the Depp Heard divorce had happened in 2015 and 2016, prior to the Me Too mo- moment. Sure. So they had lit up the gossip rags with stories of this crazy fight in Australia that happened around the filming of Pirates 5 and then their divorce in 2016. And I remember this hitting the tabloids and just, I was like, I can't even look at this. Like it was just like, I had to put it in my periphery. It was so gross and weird and icky and it's not, and you know, she was from the beginning of this story seen as a pretty complicated character in this. You know, she had these pictures of her abuse, but there was a lot of chit chat about how she was also a pretty toxic character and had her own history of like hitting a girlfriend and stuff like that. So it was a little bit more complicated. But then two years later, when there's a whole different conversation, she kind of slides back into a hashtag. Right, because, because sorry, the previous is just like an icky Hollywood divorce. Like, who really cares? Like, are you going to spend, I'm not going to spend time caring about somebody's icky Hollywood divorce. Maybe you see it on the cover of a supermarket tabloid and you walk on. This is cultural currency. There, I mean, has there been, besides like uh, Black Lives Matter, there's been no more cultural currency in the past five years, 10 years than Me Too. And so, yeah, so you're going to be, that's a moment that a lot of people are going to be paying attention to because a lot of people feel that they have skin in the game and they're seeing it change the culture. So yeah, she now is on a much, much bigger stage in 2018. And, you know, Johnny Depp, meanwhile, is really embattled from the point of that divorce, you know, that that marriage starting to crack up in 2015. His alcohol and drug use is getting out of control. His finances have spiraled. You know, he owns a private island. He owns a property in the south of France. The the eye-popping details of his life. Let me just give you one detail I heard yesterday. He had a sober coach or like a sober helpmate, you know, because they basically hired someone to try to help him get sober. This guy, who was a doctor, got $100,000 a month. His bodyguard was getting $10,000 a day. So, and, you know, there's just like, like Johnny Depp, one of the guys that was his like financial advisor for many years, testified that he had made, you know, Johnny Depp had made about $600 million in his time, 17 years with Johnny Depp. But by 2015, 2016, 2017, Johnny Depp's broke. 
Yeah. And, you know, he has either mismanaged or snorted up his nose or been robbed because he makes the allegation that this financial advisor stole money from him. The, the, the video that's going around of him like attacking cabinets and yelling and, and getting really angry. Johnny Depp claims that's after he was told about this company taking a bunch of money from him. Now, yesterday in a deposition, the guy from this company says, Hey, we've never done that. And they, there's never been any financial allegations. So if he thinks we, it's unclear whether that company mismanaged the money or Johnny Depp, you know, ignored a bunch of advice but whatever it is. You also, but you know, people in this position, I mean, we've seen it with Michael Jackson. I saw, I wrote about the actress Jenna Malone when she was a young, a young actress being very, very successful and she became emancipated from her mother. Well, who are the people that flock to, you know, the, the star to take care of them? It's just, it's just a horrific array of people. There's an entire industry that is ready to prey on, you know, the small fish and and the and the very big whales and and you know Depp was a huge whale who either did not have the perspicacity because of drug abuse or because he was gullible to say I don't know does paying someone a hundred thousand dollars a month really make sense you know you could go to AA for free but I'll you tell know. you what there, <laughs> one of the one of the really interesting depositions was with this guy that used to be in a band with Johnny and he looked like a sort of like kooky Al Pacino. You know, he kind of sounded like that. He had this big spray of white hair, but he basically looked like Al Pacino. And he had been friends with Johnny and like they called each other brothers and like just best friends. And at one point, Johnny was married to this guy's sister-in-law. This is his first marriage. It's a long time ago. And this guy, he never said he was sober, but he came across as an AA dude. Because I can just smell the program on people, mm-hmm. like the way that they talk. They, they're just like they're they're. I don't know. I'm prejudiced, but like they're solid, you know, kind of sober-minded people that take personal responsibility. And this guy had obviously been big into drugs and alcohol with Johnny, but um, you know, mentioned that he had recommended a couple different things. One was a therapist, a real life therapist, which didn't work out for Johnny. And then he recommended the program. And Johnny said, I can't do AA, mate. You know, I can't believe in a higher power. If I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do it myself. Yeah, that which I would, I, I'll tell you what, that is probably the number one reason that people that try AA bounce out of it. They get an allergy to the God language. Um, which, you know, I can talk about at length at another time because I have really complicated thoughts on that. It's also in my book, Blackout. You know, I struggle with this as well. And complicated thoughts around the higher power idea that basically the higher power, which is, you know, language that is very uncool in a kind of godless 21st century where everybody's like, casually agnostic or atheist or none is the religion on the rise the religion of none which is kind of depressing um higher power to me is really much more of an idea that you're not the center of the universe 
and that there are forces beyond you that you'll never understand. And you can't fix this yourself because you can't fix anything yourself. Self-reliance will get you into more trouble. Not that you don't need it and that it's not a virtue because there's a lot of things about getting sober that require self-reliance. And there are people that do it by themselves. I don't want to speak ill of that. I'm just telling you that if you are the chronic and sort of helpless variety that Johnny Depp seems to be, somebody that's been more or less high since the age of 11, you need help. And a program, a program of humility and connectedness and service is, I would say, a really good way. By the way, it's free. You know, AA asks for maybe a one or two dollar donation. And the number of people that are skeptical of AA because it doesn't cost anything is fascinating. I can't tell you the number of people over the years that have said to me, can I just pay for a program? Can I just pay for a therapist or a rehab? They want to pay for something because they see it as an emotional investment on their part. And so Johnny Depp said, nah, mate, I'm not going to do uh, AA. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with this sober coach that costs $100,000 a month. By the way, I'd like to take this moment to offer my services. <laughs> For half that, right? Half I that. will cut the Johnny Depp rate. $50,000 a month. And I, I have a lot of wisdom. I wrote a book. You know, the, there's so many people, you know, if you're a Johnny Depp and you've got all this money and you're paying for all this, there's so many people that are going to um, assist you in not getting sober. I mean, it's just endless. It's an endless supply of people that will be very happy to, um, you know, eat off your dime and party with you and, and tell you the things that even if it's just for that night, make you feel like a special person. Of course, you wake up in the morning worse than ever, but all right. I want to move forward here. Can I just say one more thing? Sorry, sorry, sorry. I just wanted to close the loop on that guy that was his friend that testified because I found this part really heartbreaking. So, Johnny Depp, you know, this guy's asked, like, did other people in his life want him to get sober? And he's like, yeah, I think his sister did. But, you know, she also, like, nobody wanted to really confront him. And I think a lot of the people that worked for him wanted him to get sober because it was such a mess. But, like, they're financially, you know, wrapped up in this. So they can't say anything that's going to upset him. And so around 20... Whenever the UK trial comes around, this guy, his former friend, his friend at the time, does a deposition that basically says, like, yeah, this guy drinks all the time. He'd never seen him be violent. He'd never seen any of that. But he's like, yeah, 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 he's drinking drugs are out of control. He testified for the other side. Oh. And Johnny, like, these guys have grown up together. They have been brothers. And Johnny just texts him and is like, basically, like, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. And they haven't spoken since. And this guy is like, my daughter got married and he wouldn't respond to my text messages. I mean, you get the vision of this guy, Johnny. He may be a nice dude in his heart. I think he means to be a good guy. A lot of addicts are tenderhearted, 
compassionate people, but their good intentions have been so hijacked by their primary relationship, with, which is with drugs and alcohol. And he just cuts this guy off because what? He spoke the truth. Right. But he also spoke the truth in a public forum. I don't know what the circumstances were. I don't know why he was right. called and why I, he said, yes, I have no idea. Exactly. There's a big difference. I have a question. It sounds so freaking 90s, um, but have you ever uh, done an intervention for someone? Because I have. I did one in the 90s when it was all the rage. Yeah. And then more recently, I did one with somebody I knew in the program that I was genuinely worried about her killing herself. Yeah. And I'm not a really big believer in interventions. I really, as a general rule, don't think that you can make people stop if they're not willing to stop. Um, however, there are moments when getting together as a group and saying, Hey, actually this is a problem. And doing it like that so that it's not one person yeah, is, is a lot better. And then also I would say there's moments when somebody is in so much danger, as was the case in this one, that you just like, you have to say you're going to a rehab today. Yeah, we, we, we did one. It was, I think it was actually was the late nineties. And just remember uh, going and meeting um, someone I'd known since I was a kid and uh, we used to have lunch, and I was like, "Oh, let's have lunch." Hey, he he shows up and sits down, and then all of a sudden, his sister also shows up, who I knew I'd known yeah. two kids, and then my brother also shows up, and he he's like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, and uh, he was like, "Well, you know, I really want to try to do it my way." This other program yeah. that I heard about, and blah blah blah, and his mom, who I also knew, I mean, knew everybody, so I was like, "Okay, we'll try that your way." And of course, he failed within, you know whole week. Um, yeah. But he did wind up going, like moved across the country, went and lived with his father, went to business school. And it's like, he is such a, I'm obviously not going to say who he is or what he does now, but he's just such an incredibly marvelous success story and married and kids and sunshiny and like the beautiful person he always was, yeah. but couldn't be. I remember I used to run the LA marathon a lot. And I remember coming around the corner in uh, Los Feliz there. And he was standing with my, my sister-in-law at the time. And he was wearing, this is pre getting uh, sober. And he, he was on drugs actually. And he was wearing like a trench coat and his teeth were green. And I was like, man, this is just not, this is not the person you're supposed to be at 28 years old. Anyway, it, um, it does. It's, so I haven't even thought of the word intervention in, in forever, but, um, but um, anyway, Johnny definitely was not getting the uh, the care that he needed because he also paid this guy a hundred thousand dollars a month. And what happened? Did the guy did the guy get him sober? Well, and one of the things that this friend is mentioning, he also had a sober nurse. Johnny had a sober nurse as well, and and this guy would go hang out with him, and he'd be doing weed and drinking beer. Mm -hmm. And the guy was like, "I just don't know what part of sobriety this is," and he basically tells Johnny like this is a crock man and 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 one of the last parts of his deposition is he goes you know it's a weird place to be Johnny you know everybody wants a piece of you yeah yeah well but but this is the way it always was with fame it's just this way people it's a light it's a shiny light people are attracted to it and then what's in it for me you know um and it's why I think I I would like to watch Edward Scissorhands again because I really loved that movie and I've been watching old Johnny Depp movies 
to remind myself, honestly, what a gifted and versatile actor he is. I think really underrated because he is so, first of all, he's known for this goofy pirates movie. <laughs> That's what makes seen. him, um, you know, Johnny's never seen it either. So doesn't like it. It is a fun Keith Richards imitation. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally get why people dig it, but it's just like, if you care about the craft of acting, I was reminded yesterday at the courthouse of the movie Gilbert Grape. I was just going to say, What's Eating? People, if people, because I don't know how old our listeners are, but um, if you haven't seen What's Eating Gilbert Grape, that is a really, really interesting, beautiful little movie. And I haven't seen it since it, since it came out, but go, go check that out. We have, we'll have links in the show notes. And, and who's in it? A very young, very Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio, who's very young. I think he's like, I don't think he's 18 in this movie. Um, so that book is based on a novel by Peter Hedges, which is about a sort of small town guy that's lost in his life. He's having an affair with an older woman. He's kind of aimless. This young, you know, manic pixie dream girl comes to town in the in the form of Juliette Lewis in the movie. But his brother is uh, special needs. And I don't remember what the actual special need is. Um, but he is played in the movie by Leonardo DiCaprio. The, the role is so convincing that I actually thought that actor right. had a speech impediment. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio was nominated for an Oscar for that. Um, it's a beautiful movie. And yesterday I saw a guy outside the courthouse holding a sign that said, I want to be a good person in quotes. And then it said, you know, attribution, Gilbert Grape. And there was like a documentary film crew around him. And it was him and his mom. And there's a, the courthouse was such a weird scene. We'll get to it in a second. But um, I was watching Edward Scissorhands because it had, dawned on me around the start of this trial like that movie is i think the best metaphor for fame because you hurt everyone that you touch edward scissorhands is a beautiful fable by tim burton and it's basically about a man that was like there was like this inventor and he came up with this invention that was this tender-hearted boy who became a man but he had scissors for hands and everything it's a it's a modern darker you know it's a new Midas touch it's an opposite Midas touch story Midas touch is the old story about everything that the guy touches turns to gold well that is what fame is fame cuts everybody that you want to get closer to you and the madness one of the one of the soul sicknesses of american society is that we have a delusion that fame will get you what you want it will get you love it will get you attention adulation value and in some superficial ways it does but it is a shallow one because what you find is that it's not really about you. They just like the, the fantasy projection of whoever Johnny Depp is. I mean, I spent some time with some really hardcore Johnny Depp fans yesterday. 
and they love him. But Johnny Depp, the person, knows very well that they don't even know him. Well, they can't possibly love him because they don't know who he is. They've never met him. They've only met characters that he's played. And I would include the character of the actor Johnny Depp. When you're saying that, you know, fame cuts everyone that is around you, but it also, of course, it cuts the person who's famous or it doesn't cut them. It keeps them sort of hermetically sealed. Yeah, they're isolated because like, who can you trust? Uh, because you can't. I mean, you 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 know. There's like the gold digger accusation. There's the hundred thousand dollar, you know, drug rehab guy. It's like who you really do become isolated. And in terms of fame, like bringing you all these things. I mean, you and I both talked about this on a on a previous episode. Like being young and wanting to be famous. I I, I yes. wanted to be famous so desperately, like so for bad. many 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 years. And then you realize actually fame is nothing. Fame is, fame is completely ephemeral. It doesn't actually, like you can't eat it. You can't wrap it around yourself. It's not comfort. It's not anything. What it is is a commodity that, sure, I mean, interesting things can happen with it. We talked about like people that you never actually hear anything about their life. They have it like a Jeremy, not Jeremy Irons. Um, what's the other one? The one that was in um, um, There Will Be Blood. Uh, that Danielle Day Lewis. Yeah, like you don't really know anything about him, or maybe like a little too much. You don't like people. He's he's a little odd. But in any case, um, fame is is really nothing. Um, but it it is it it really can cause a lot of damage, man. It it is just a it is a nuclear problem, and um, and I'm you're you've kind of been seeing it close up right now, and I'd really and- really like to hear about that. Yeah. And so to, to come back to our story, you know, Johnny Depp becomes the biggest movie star in the world, at least according to his agent in the aughts. And by 2015 and 2016, his life is exploding, imploding, I should say. Some of his other projects are not doing well. Um, he's financially in the straits. He's cut off. Of, he's probably having some sort of crisis around his divorce and who can he trust and the the vultures are descending. And so he cuts off a lot of people in his life, including this friend, including this agent he'd had for 20 years. And in, and so he's in a low place when this Amber Heard story hits in 2018. It's a long way of saying that this piece hits him at a very, very low time. And after that piece, one of the things she says on the stand, I think this is just obnoxious. You know, she says, look, that, that piece wasn't about Johnny. The only person that thought that piece was about Johnny was Johnny. And I'm like, uh, and everybody else, including the freaking Disney that fired him from pirates after it. No, ma'am. Everybody thought that piece was about Johnny and that's why they ran it. So, when she's saying that piece wasn't about judge, she just happened to be a person speaking on the issue. Like yeah, I could be speaking, on the, speaking on the issue. But and I don't, this I don't, is, this, is I not, this is nonsensical. <laughs> I can't tell if she is delusional or manipulative or both. I mean, did she really think that she was the women's ambassador for voices for the ACLU and they wanted to just hear her basic thoughts? on women that undergo she keeps saying that the piece was about the backlash she endured during the divorce and how women that speak up 
get silenced and shamed, but she's going to deny that it's about Johnny, quote, about Johnny. Because again, you and I have looked at that piece. There is very little about Johnny, but there is nothing but subtext and implication in that piece. You know, I survived domestic abuse, headline sexual violence, like, and it's all about Johnny. Johnny is the subtext of that piece. Johnny is the selling point of that piece. So anyway, I don't want to dally there, but I just want to give you a sense of the kind of force field she's got up on the stand around her own responsibility in this. She won't even admit that that piece was about Johnny Depp. And she throws shade on him for being the only person that thought it was about Johnny, which is patent nonsense. No, I mean, because first of all, like the ACLU didn't come to me to write that piece. Why? Why didn't they come to you? Why didn't they come to uh, my, the guy that runs the laundry downstairs? They came to her because she was Johnny Depp's former wife who had won a court case where she was not, she had not been silenced and uh, she now had a movie coming out. She was, she was the vehicle. She was the vehicle for the message. And there's a reason for that. And it's because she had been married to Johnny Depp. So, I mean, maybe, maybe she's talking about some other person in her life that she'd endured abuse by, which apparently I think she has claimed, or she was, I know she had been accused of being violent and even, uh, not arrested or detained at an airport or something. But in any case, let's so talk. So just by the way, like, if I'm going to do a story, I, I will tap the guy that does laundry downstairs at your place before I tap Amber Heard. That's going to be my order well, of business. Well, he probably absolutely. has a great story. He, I think but, he was, actually, I think he was probably... Uh, he's a Chinese immigrant, that's for sure. But I will just—I'll uh, give one little aside here. If um, if 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 readers, I mean listeners, probably don't know the phrase, but it's called uh, "get the grave digger." Do you know the origins of that story? Get no. the grave digger, because I've been told that by one of my editors. He's one's like, "You're good. You're always like the get the grave digger story." So when uh, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Um, everybody, of course, was down there and they were standing on the the Rocky Knoll and they were this and they were all talking. But the Jimmy, Rocky Knoll. Wasn't that what it's called? The, the Rocky Grassy Knoll. Oh, the Grassy Knoll. <laughs> Sorry. I think Rocky Knoll is like a <laughs> yeah, some, artist. Just like I, think, I think Rocky Knoll is actually a place in Oklahoma. But oh, anyway, okay. um, but Jimmy Breslin came down and where, where did he go? He went down, he went to the cemetery where the guy was digging, I'm getting goosebumps, where the guy was digging Kennedy's grave and he mm-hmm. talked to him and there's no one else there. Just him and the grave digger. And that's, that's the a real story. journalist, Jimmy that's Breslin. That's the story he wrote. So you want to get the grave digger. I mean, the, the ACLU doing this, it's just the most unbelievably obvious, blunt, the most, t- and, and the Washington Post, I, I'm, you know, I have a big, big, big problem with the Washington Post opinion section. A big problem. This is the most blunt, artless, obnoxious form of journalism that is a disservice to journalism. If you want to bring stories to people, if you want to actually shed light on stuff, you've got to, you've got to go under the nub. You've got to look in the places that are understood, the obvious, obnoxious, mercenary sort of places. You got to go get the grave digger. Anyway, I've said my piece about um, that. Nancy, we're yeah. about halfway through our podcast. Yeah. Um, what is it called? What is what called? Our podcast. 
Our podcast is called Smoke Em If You Got Em. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for everybody that's been signing up. And hey, you're, you're, I just want to tell you, you're, you're, um, uh, you're roving ambassadors here. I just got back pretty late last night from um, Texas and Oklahoma. You're in uh, Virginia. We're doing a little traveling for you guys. We're trying to report from location. So stick with us. Um, I'm really, really interested in a couple of things that I want to, because we really haven't had a chance to communicate. I've been driving a thousand miles in the past two days. Um, I'm really interested in number one, the scene at the courthouse, because of course we are the people that create these stories, right? We are the people that create these stories. If, if it was like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, nobody would know about them, except that was that was Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. So we did know about that. But anyway, and I also really want to hear, because you've stayed up on it, I want to hear about Amber Heard's... Um, testimony. I haven't read one word about how she's been doing up there. So Sarah Hepler, go. When you pull up to the Fairfax County Courthouse, which is sort of in a very peaceful roundabout, it's all red brick. It looks very old fashioned Americana. You think to yourself, have I got the right place? And then you see the big van for court TV and you go, okay, yes, I do. I pulled up at about two o'clock on Wednesday because my plane had flown in that morning. So everybody's inside the courthouse now. There's no scene outside. Interesting. Birds are chirping. There's geese on this like sloping lawn. Rocky Knoll. Um, Rocky Knoll. (laughs) And uh, there's like one guy sitting on a bench and like a rumpled jacket and a beard. And I'm like, oh, it's a journalist. Because he's just got that total, like, <laughs> I didn't fucking iron anything journalist thing. So uh, I go up to him and I introduce myself. And sure enough, he is from France originally, but he lives in New York City. He's here reporting for a Parisian newspaper. Now, this is going to be a pattern. International news has come to cover this. Very few American journalists have. Now, what I mean by that is when you when you pull up, right, you see the court TV thing, and I'm thinking like, oh, wow, it's going to be like really, really populated by a bunch of journalists. No, it's not. The court TV people are inside the courtroom. There are people from a channel called Law and Crime. Yeah. They've got a white tent sort of, out on the lawn and like the big camera dude is sitting there like bored looking at his phone and the lady in the fuchsia suit that's on camera, she's coming back and forth and doing whatever she's doing. I never even heard of the long crime channel. The journalists that I met, there were two people from Germany. There was a British documentarian and that was it. Uh, it's in addition to the French guy. And there's me, okay? So, and let me tell you a funny story. I, my phone is almost out of batteries because I am a disorganized person. And so I get to the courthouse and I need to find a plug. So I go into the cafeteria and I see this guy at his laptop. It's like handsome, like ruggedly handsome guy. And I'm like, I know that guy, but I'm thinking like, I probably know him from television. So I'm going to, I don't want to do that embarrassing thing where I'm like, Hey, do I know you? And he's like, yeah, I'm on TV. So I just like, I'm like, Hey, do you know where a plug is? And 
He's like, yeah, there's one there. He points to it. He's got his ear pods in, air pods in. He like points to it. So I sit down and I plug in my, my phone and I'm tippy tapping and I get a Diet Coke or whatever. And then I hear this guy talking and he has a British accent. And I'm like, oh, oh I know this voice. <laughs> Nancy Rommelman, there was one journalist I wanted to meet I know. that was covering the Depper trial because I've been listening to his podcast and I was determined to message him before I got there. But of course, being the disorganized person I was, I had not done this. And yet I lean over to him and I say, this is going to sound crazy if it's not true, but are you Nick Wallace? And he's like, yes, I am. Yes, and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I've been listening to your freaking podcast reporting that be heard. And he's like, oh, well, thank you so much. And he's this like, totally like dapper charming like first of all the brits are just like 20 percent more charming than us at any given moment yeah like you got up at one point he's like would you like some coffee or tea and i was like oh i'm i'm gonna marry you <laughs> and he's got a <laughs> wedding ring on so that's not gonna happen for me but it was so like it was so funny and i was like oh dude dude I wanted to talk to you. And he's like, yeah, like, let's do it. But of course, he's like, got his earpiece in. He's got to like, listen to the trial. Yeah. And be tweeting and doing his thing like it's streaming. And, you know, like do all his interviews afterwards. He'd been there for like five weeks. He's losing his mind. And I was like, does it seem to you like there's not a lot of journalists here? And he was like, absolutely. I'm going to stop doing the British accent now. No, I'm no, no, but you that. actually do it well. I do it terribly. But okay, so I need, before we get back to Nick Walsh, which by the way, we have literally linked his stuff in every show notes because this Everyone. is the, the go-to person. I've actually, I've watched, I've listened to like one or two of his things. Sarah's obviously the person that's been on this. Um, before we and get I'm into- gonna be, And I'm going to be recording his show today. Yeah. No, guys, stick with us. Like we're bringing it to you right from the we're source. Okay. Going places. Okay. So, um, I want to know your theory if you have one. I have like a tiny little momentarily half baked one. Why is the American press not there? I've got two theories on this. Okay. One is the most obvious one, which is that this this trial is being broadcast on court TV. Okay. So you can watch it from the comfort of your goddamn bed. The second is that the establishment media aligned themselves with Amber Heard and the story about the unassailable victimhood of women that come forward. And they are disinterested in walking this back. They are in a bind they do not have the right people to be writing about this. I mean, a lot of what publications like the New York Times did in the Me Too years was to snatch up writers that had a really high profile in that in that arena. Lindy West was brought into the New York Times. Roxanne Gay was brought into the New York Times. Michelle Goldberg, who used to be at Salon, who's an excellent writer, she did. Now she did write about this yesterday, and you and I can talk about that piece or not talk about that piece. Um, you know, the headline is like the death of me too. Um, Michelle Goldberg, I will say, regardless of my thoughts on that particular piece, I'm going to say she is, she's a badass who has been covering stories around feminism and 
Roe v. Wade specifically, she wrote a book on, um, I think it's called the, the rights of reproduction. Um, we did an excerpt in salon. Um, but she has been reporting on quote unquote women's issues for many, many years. She's an extremely smart person. Uh, but she has been at the New York times for a while. You know, I don't know why Lindy West or Roxanne Gay haven't written about this. It's as I pointed out before, you know, Roe v. Wade is a big story. And, and if that's, if women's stories are your beat, you want to be on that one. And Roxanne Gay has written a, a great piece on that. Yeah. Um, but, but like, where is everybody? Where? Okay. And, and also as I was, okay. Yesterday was an awesome day as a reporter. Like if you live for stories and you live for interesting, intersecting cultural ideas, you've got Johnny Depp fans, you've got international media ish, you've got this fascinating toxic dyad that sort of represents both addiction and female manipulation and the concept of whatever mutual abuse may be and our ideas around domestic violence. You've got media, you've got court TV, you've got all these vectors and nobody's there. So I had a land grab on the story because even there was one journalist there in the morning because uh, I got there at 6 a.m. to interview people that had lined up all night. And we'll talk about that in a second. And the other journalist was from the local Fox affiliate. And so he's doing what, and, and this is no shade on him. Local TV news is very, you can only do so many things. You've got it like it's a churn cycle. You got to like get some random people talking about stuff on camera and then you got to bail and go put it on the nightly news or whatever. So he's just dipping in and dipping out. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there having these like conversations with the people in line about what was the trivia they did. And they had Johnny Depp trivia the night before. What was their first Johnny Depp movie? You know, what are their thoughts, feelings? I mean, this is all, this is like the stuff you live for as a journalist, which is to get this unusual scene around a scene. And I'm thinking during the day, as I'm going from scene to scene, where would I normally have read this story? Magazines. Mm. Esquire magazine in the 90s, which creates a blueprint for a lot of my journalistic aesthetic is where I would have read this story. You had people like David Foster Wallace. Dave Eggers was an editor there. You had people like Tom Junod. Um, I mean, you had actual Tom Junod. <laughs> um, but, but other writers like him. Doing these under, under the editor, David Granger, who was really pushing that magazine to the next level, you were getting these incredibly juicy, morally complicated stories about celebrity and American values and American life. And they were also like wildly stylish from a prose standpoint. You know, they had really good writing and writers and editors, I would assume. And Anyway, that's where I would have read it. 
And what is Esquire these days? Tell me. I, I don't know. I don't remember reading. I think maybe one, there was a recent piece that was okay in Esquire, but I don't recall. I will also just give a little pitch because I was definitely part of that. You you used to read these stories on the cover of the Better Alt Weeklies. I mean, the LA Weekly definitely uh, well, would give me 9,000 words. You know, 9,000 words is a pretty chunky article. And that was an oh, absolute regular cover feature. You know, My first, oh, sorry. No, no. My first story, my first cover story for the Austin Chronicle. I was 23 years old and I went undercover to high school prom. I remember that story. Yeah. I mean, so, okay. So we're, so the answer, a couple of things. The answer is where are you going to see that story now? You're going to see it here because this is now we've got new transmission devices. You were Sarah Heppola. You are the person, a little round of applause for Sarah Heppola for bringing out the story. I'm going to really, I'm going to push the hell out of this story. And guys, if you're listening to it, please, please do that too. Cause I think it is really of interest and we're also, I think going to have an open thread uh, over here uh, where you can talk a little bit more about this. Well, and but I'm it, just going to say, I'm going to write, I'm, you know, we're going to do this podcast. I'm going to have some other stuff around this story, but I'm going to do a killer story that, you know, we're going to push out probably, I'll probably take the week to write it because these, these, these kind of pieces take a little bit of time. Yeah. And you've got, but images I'm going to write, too. I've got images, I've got audio, I've got video. I've got the most adorable video from a 12 year old Johnny Depp super fan that drove in from the Bronx with her mom wearing an Edward Scissorhands t-shirt. She bought at Hot Topic. She kept telling everybody, oh, I bought Topic. it at Hot Topic. I got it at Hot Topic. Oh. She, she was lined up. She had like frizzy hair or curly hair that was like dyed purple in places, right? She's kind of like this cool 12 year old kid. She, oh, by the way, I thought she was 20. She's like, everybody thinks I'm 20. I'm like, yeah, I know. I remember being that kid too. And she is lined up at the back of the courthouse for, um, Johnny Depp comes in and out of the back of the courthouse a few times a day. One, is it not at 8.45 when his SUV arrives? It's being driven by somebody else. He is in the back seat on the right. Everybody knows this. They gather on the right-hand side of the street. He puts his hand out and waves. And there are, it looks like a 4th of July parade out there. There are people from the area of Fairfax that just line up in the mornings. There was a young girl with a little Justice for Johnny sign with her mom. The mom had a dog that had a Justice for Johnny tag on its collar they come every morning at 8 45 and 4 30 or 5 30 depending on when the court gets out just to say goodbye and then in the meantime during in the middle of the day they go on with their day like she's got to go to school mom's got to do whatever mom's got to do but this is how they bookend the day every single day well my 12 year old has driven in from the bronx she's standing there with her phone she gets a video of johnny she, I go over and talk to her because afterwards she is literally shrieking and trembling. I mean, she's like, I got his arm. I'm freaking out. I got it. I got Johnny. I, he was waving to me. And I sort of go over there and I'm like, Hey, I'm with the press. She's like, she didn't give a shit who I am. She's just like, do you want to see? Do you want to see? Do you want to see? <laughs> and I'm like, yes. And she's like crying, literally crying. And I was so moved because I was that 12 year old. Like I was also, and then I go, I go like, 
how do you even know who Johnny Depp is? And she's like, oh my God, my mom. And because if, okay, so this is where like I forget because I don't have kids. I'm the demographic for Johnny Depp, right? Because I'm 11 years old when 21 Jump Street comes on the air. And he is like this really cool artsy art uh, heartthrob through my formative teen years. If I had kids, likely those kids would be somewhere between like 12 and 18. So who do I see in line but a bunch of moms my age with their teenage daughters and a couple of teenage sons that are like, yeah, I had to come to this bullshit because the, the sons are like, whatever. But the daughters are like, we camped overnight and we drove together and we're wearing our shirts and it's like mommy, sister, who's the mom and who's the daughter and all this stuff. So she tells me like, yeah, I watched it because my mom and I go, well, I watched Johnny Depp because I saw 21 Jump Street and she goes, oh my God, oh my God, I've watched it. I have it on DVD. I've watched all of it and I'm on the fourth season and I can't bring myself to keep watching it because I don't want it to end. Wow. That's some cultural currency. I got it. I'm going to admit it. I don't think I ever saw that show. Well, because I'm a little older and like you're there was a little a, bit older. And that was like, really, I think I was like in college. Like when I was in no. college, there was no, like I never watched TV ever. Like there was no, we, I just didn't. So I missed like a whole generation of television shows that, that everybody else was 21 watching. Jump Street was one of the premier shows on a new network that had never been seen before in this culture called Fox. Well, I remember watching The Simpsons. That was on Fox. It was. Yeah. And there were about four or five shows that they debuted with. Married with Children was one of them. um, To introduce this fourth network to rival the triumvirate that had been. Right. right. Anything you watched back then, it had to be on one of the three networks. We had this monoculture. So Fox comes up and one of the shows they have it was clearly designed for the teeny bopper crowd. It's called 21 Jump Street. And it's about older cops that are going undercover at a high school. See, I didn't even realize when I was going undercover at a high school prom. How influenced you'd been. I was completely influenced by 21 yeah. Jump Street. And so I remember, I remember I'd finally gotten a television in my room because I had to fight with my... Mm, hippie mom who would only let me watch an hour of television a day, which was not fair. I think we can both agree. We did not have cable in our eighties home. I had to go over to my friend's house to watch live aid. Do you realize how hard my childhood was? I, I, yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be calling your mom and talking about this. She's got to make some amends. Listen, she has some amends to make. Yep. So right around seventh grade, my mom is just like, no longer going to fight this fight. Our Black and white television moves into my room so that our big new color television will go into the living room. And at this point, my mom has stopped fighting the battle. I get to watch as much television as I want. It had like a flip dial, like this was an old thing. And there was a show and it was called 21 Jump Street. And there was an actor that had a beauty that I had never seen before on this here earth. 
he had eyes that were just soulful and this hair no, he that was like a hair. perfect yeah. fountain in mid-spring and his cheekbones which you know he's part native american is he I, he's, cher- he's cherokee i think oh i got it so sorry i'm gonna take one little diversion here so uh, as a parent of a of a half-native child, half-Creek, her dad was full blood. And, you know, we met a million people that were always saying they were Native. And also people just mistakenly think they are. Like, they're told that. That's like, right. oh, my grandmother was this and that. So here's, the, here's what you say. If you meet someone who tells you that they're, um, that they're part Native, take a moment, pause, look at them, and say, I bet you're part Cherokee. And they're like, Oh my God, how did you know? And then uh, you can say something like, oh, well, you know, it's it's like your nose. I can tell from that. No, what it is is that the Cherokees were the ones that intermarried with whites. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. So anyway, continue. Yeah. I- yeah. So so I was absolutely thunderstruck with this guy. And I don't, like nobody knew who Johnny Depp was. I was the first person in like my seventh, sixth, I think I was in sixth grade actually my sixth grade class that was just like completely obsessed with this new actor, Johnny Depp. I didn't, the internet didn't exist. You didn't go and connect with people. I just he started showing up in like people magazine and teen beat. And obviously this was happening, you know, like other people were starting to catch on to the uncommon beauty of this actor. But I really felt like I had discovered him. Now I did. And I did, I did discover him just for myself. But, um, you know, that is deep for me that I would have this really uncommon attachment to this, to this actor. And then fast forward. Okay. We're going to go ahead and say 35 years. And I'm at his trial surrounded by a bunch of people that are just absolutely flipping out. I mean, you've got like the older woman that's drawn a painting of Johnny with angel wings and you've got the like sassy girl from England that's like left her job for weeks to come out here and like scream so that they can get close to him. I did an audio memo, a voice memo about this experience, the fan experience of sitting behind the courthouse. So I'm not going to dwell here because that's, I talk yeah. about it in this other thing. It's I coming. do these little, I call it, I do these things called smoking diaries that are little audio memos that I do while in the morning while I'm smoking. And so I don't want to tally there, but, but that whole experience, you know, one of the interesting things that I discovered was you're so right that, uh, this is a media sensation that's about journalism, but since the journalists have abdicated, the primary movers of this story are YouTubers and TikTokers. And so one of the men, one of the people that I met in line Yesterday, again, they have to line up overnight and stay overnight to get one of the hundred seats in the courthouse. They are not allowed to line up before 1 a.m., so they congregate in the parking garage. And there's a woman that's worked out a number system. She had to do this because the crowds got so crazy during the cross-examination of Amber Heard, which we'll talk about in a second, which started at the beginning of this week. Her cross-examination had followed a week-long, like, pause in the trial when it went really wild on TikTok and YouTube. And so the crowds descended. People were starting to realize from all over the country that they could just come. 
They could just come to this thing. And so they showed up and this woman had to figure out a numbering system. They have little duct tape on their, you know, wherever they want to stick it. And it has a little number. She runs the numbers. And then as soon as they're allowed to line up inside the courthouse at 1 a.m., they go take their place in line. And pretty much if you get there after 11 p.m. the night before, you're not going to get into the courthouse. Now, there's 50 people that are going to get into an overflow room. Why you would want to sit in an overflow room in a courthouse, that just seems like completely uncomfortable and whatever. I didn't want to do it. Because you can watch it on stream it. It's ridiculous. So anyway, I was talking with the people in line and I noticed this one guy who was in a suit. He looked in his mid-20s. He actually turns out to be 29. Really cute guy. He actually looked like a lawyer. And I hear him talking with the Fox News affiliate and he's like, yeah, I was just coming through and I decided to go to this trial because I thought it was kind of interesting. And then he was in a picture that went viral online. He's sitting in the courtroom behind Amber Heard and they, they give some sort of testimony and he makes like a surprised face because he's a very expressive guy. Yeah. And this picture goes viral. I had seen it. I had seen this picture. And he becomes like an online celebrity. Everybody is following him on Twitter. He has to create a new Twitter account called James from Court so that they're not like all up in his personal Twitter business. He had 17,000 followers when I followed him yesterday morning. By the end of the day, when I interviewed him, he had like 34,000. He is now like, well, I got to keep going back to the trial because people are expecting. He starts doing video commentary with some of the YouTubers that are going to this trial. So when I was looking out at the line, there were a couple of guys because it's it's mostly like 95% female, but there's about 5% guys. Some of the guys are like dressed up nice. And I was like, why are they doing that? It's because they have their own YouTube channel called like, and I'll put some of the links in our episode notes. I don't remember them, but they do legal commentary because the actual American media is not here. And they have like a hundred thousand views on some of these things and a million. Like, I don't know. I haven't looked at their, at their, but basically American media has abdicated this to the YouTubers and the social media influences that influencers that are on site and the TikTokers that are just not even here at all. They're just basically spreading memes around. You know what? The legal aspect of it and reporting on that is so interesting. Um, when we were talking in the last episode about the Duke lacrosse case and how the group of 88, the professors, including the president of the school, had come out against um, these lacrosse players who were completely innocent. And then, you know, when they were found innocent, you know, whatever, nothing really happened. They had no consequences for them. But the the lawyer that had brought the case, the prosecutor who had like lied and manipulated things in order to push that forward, he got disbarred. Yeah, and I it's did. interesting. So it's interesting. I actually am super interested in hearing about the legal aspects of this. And of course, there's a lot of, you know, perception. I don't know how this is going to work out at all. But I'll just say one thing before we get on to her testimony. I absolutely agree with you. Um, and uh, first of all, I agree with you about Michelle Goldberg. I find about... of her columns, her opinion pieces for the Times to be super interesting, 
always well-written, always considered. She's not doing like the obvious thing like they're doing at the Washington Post. Uh, um, and then there are some that just drive me bananas and I disagree with her very vehemently, but she's always a good writer. But I did think yesterday's piece, which I did tweet about, um, I she she called it the death of me too, now, which probably she did not call it. We don't know if she right. wrote that's that true. headline per true. our columnist would have a different deal with the times. But anyway, go ahead. True. I mean, we a couple like one of our very earliest episodes when we were talking about this, I I I posed or you did uh, that this the the trial kind of was a referendum on me too. You posed and it. you know if if this had happened if we had been covering this in 2018, the the din the hue and cry would have been so loud that that that, that everybody would have just supported her and that would have been that. But we're at a slightly different we're at a slightly different part of the time now it's it's 2022 and her story has a lot of holes in it now his might too and i think you know finally in goldberg's column yesterday she's like well you know there are some other things to consider here but you know she'd spent the first six or seven or nine graphs talking about how what a disaster this is for women um that they that they won't be believed well the thing is that this is not a convenient story if you want to have me to be the hill you're going to die on this is a problematic story story. So we think, yes, people are just being quiet right now because it's just too hard to what these holes are too big. You can't just go in and say, well, it doesn't matter. Like again, context doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. Due process doesn't matter. It, the larger, the larger message, the larger thing here to move women forward is more important. But as we said, and as I will say every single time to my dying day, you can't build a solid house or a solid platform on sand. You've got to have what you're talking about being super solid. And an Amber Heard case right now is not super solid. It is not going to help your 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 vehicle, I'm using 6,000 metaphors here, move forward in the right direction and, and actually help people. So I understand why, why the sort of mainstream media that had its message and words I'm going to deviate are not going to report on it. They're going to sit back, they're going to sit on the fence, and they're going to wait to see which way the wind blows. And yeah. then if it doesn't blow their way, they're just going to move on to the next story. They're not and, not going to uh, metabolize it. Yeah, I appreciated the Michelle Goldberg piece because it was at least saying something about this case that is one of the most important topics in America right now. I mean, there was a there was a poll that came out that like. People are more interested in Depp Heard than Roe v. Wade by like margins of. That was bananas. It was bananas. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll link to that Axios piece. And, you know, it's better to have. I was so shocked by the absence of considered intelligent commentary. And so shocked by the proliferation of knee-jerk sort of goofy commentary on TikTok and YouTube. And the combinations of that, I was just very grateful for a figure like Michelle Goldberg to wade into this story. And one of the interesting things she brings up in there, and I hadn't seen other people mention it, and I'm really glad she did. There is an interesting question over how social media is being manipulated either one way or the other. You know, for instance, there was a team that was hired by Herd's team to find out how many bots were behind some of these hashtag campaigns against Amber. I think they found about 300 
It's a relatively small number when you consider the huge explosion. But at the same time, we also know that a few strange actors can really push a narrative in a weird way. I will tell you one thing I noticed on Twitter yesterday, and I can't remember if I sent this to you. I was sitting at the courthouse and I saw a tweet that had gone viral that was from some random woman. And it said, I heard Johnny Depp handed out waffles at the courthouse this morning. His, his people handed out waffles and it's got like more than it's got thousands of retweets and likes. And this woman had like not that many followers to begin with. And I go, I wrote back to her and I go, Hey, I'm wondering where you heard this. Cause I was, I'm actually at the courthouse right now and there were no waffles that I saw. And of course she didn't respond to me, but I'm like, why did this person say that? It's so uh, there is random. something weird going on. Like, uh, first of all, just there's something weird going on everywhere all the time. And, and it feels like social media is such a like, forget gaslighting chamber. It's just like total, con- you know, fun house mirror. You don't know what's reality. But I just found that fascinating because there's no question that both sides are attempting to pull the levers of social media. The question is, to what extent are they and how successful are they? Well, I think we can blame a little bit of that on the legacy media. I mean, obviously, legacy media is being replaced. We know that. But but also, nature abhors a void. Okay, if you don't, have, exactly right. if you don't have 76 major publications and, and CNN and whatever, then who's going to be listened to? You're going to get the people that are going to be like, oh, well, I can just say they passed out some waffles. You know, and then, then, then that's what people are paying attention to as opposed to a headline on uh, the Washington Post. I know. And in this economy where everybody is just like so desperate for attention, so desperate for likes, one of the first comments on that was a woman saying, yeah, I just saw a video of Depp meeting everybody. And then, you know, she, she posts it. I I, I don't think this video is fake. I think it probably happened towards the beginning of the trial. It was a very low key situation in the beginning. Since the crowds started showing up, they do not do, Johnny Depp does not get out and greet no, people individually. He does not. He goes in a black SUV with his hand out before disappearing behind a gate where he will spend the rest of the time surrounded by people. So th- there is not this kind of access. But it, if I were just watching from home, I would be like, look at what a good dude Johnny Depp is. He's handing out waffles. And saying hi to everybody. And in fact, that's what you see in the comments. Like, what a good dude. Well, Johnny Depp's the best. She doesn't to, love waffles. She was trying to juice that uh to juice that image. Okay, I really, really, really want to hear about some of the uh Amber Heard testimony. Now, this is when she's being cross-examined, correct? The cross-examination is that what we began. Are? The cross-examination began on Monday. This is Friday when we're recording this. It followed a hiatus because the judge had been on vacation or doing something else. During that time, a tremendous amount of anticipation had built up. The Until that point in the trial, we had mostly heard from Depp's attorney, Ben Chu. But at this point, they kind of see the spotlight to a female attorney named Camille Vasquez. Camille Vasquez is she lives in LA. She is a beautiful woman 
She has, I believe she's from originally from Colombia. She has that long tumbling, the long tumbling locks. And she comes into court in these like sharp suits and spiky heels. She looks like a million bucks and she is a badass. I mean, you can, when I got to the court on Wednesday, this woman has blown up so much. She has become a, a, a celebrity by virtue of her brutal cross-examination of Amber Heard, which I'll tell you about in a second. But just to give you a sense of like the mythology that's grown around this woman, when I got there, there was a guy on the lawn with a sign that said, we love you, Camille Vasquez. So people are standing for this woman who is a very good, you know, she's really, really good at getting to the important information fast. She doesn't, she has a really calm tone. She doesn't mince words. It's very penetrating. It was surprising how fast she got through the cross-examination because I think a lot of us, myself included, thought that this was going to drag on for days and days and days because there were so many things that you needed to like pick holes in. But she kind of went like, bam, 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 bam. The cross-examination begins in the last hour and a half of Monday and you're sort of like, eh, they're just going to get to like a few details. No, no. By the end of that day, she had already gotten Amber Heard to basically spill the beans on how she hadn't done any of these donations to ACLU and the Children's Hospital. And one of the interesting things that Amber says is, because she has said under oath that she gave this money, and so now Camille's trying trying to get her for perjury. And Amber is like, you know, I use the phrase, I use the words pledge and donate interchangeably or synonymously, which is, by the way, I would also like to tell the IRS the same thing. So she's saying I pledged the money is the same as saying I donated the money. I get because they had a video of her on a, I think it's an Australian talk show. I can't remember where she goes on and basically says, yeah, I gave all my divorce settlement to charity. And the guy's like, you know, a lot of people get divorce settlements, but you did something very different. And she's like, yeah, I gave all $7 million to the ACLU and the children's hospital. So she says that on camera and she got, uh, she got uh, upbraided or what she got that undone on the stand. Yeah. She gave 300 and some thousand dollars. Elon Musk gave a million. She dated Elon Musk for a little bit. And Johnny Depp gave, I think, at least 100000 So she, again, claims, I, I want to make good on it. I'm going to make good on it. It's just that Johnny hit me with all these legal things, yada, yada. Um, there's some upending cross-examination around a lot of these photos, okay? We saw a number of photos of her with bruises, various places. Um, they're going to start introducing things that actually were already done weeks ago on the internet 
if you've been paying attention to this, you've probably seen it. You know, a day after one of the incidents, she goes on James Corden, uh, the, t- the late night talk show. She doesn't have any visible scars. They have like close up pictures of her. She'd said she had a fat lip. They've got like close ups of her mouth and there's no sign. And she's going to, she's saying like, you know, look, this is makeup. I'm really good. And in a couple of places, like she'll take, she'll, she'll take a minute and say like, well, you know, on the first day, a bruise is this way and you have to counteract the color with the opposite color on the color wheel. And on the second day, the bruise is like this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the questions, I mean, one of the moments that they haven't, I, I don't remember them dissecting it, but I found it so like, un, like hard to believe was, um, you know, she shows up at the courthouse to file, I believe her restraining order while Johnny Depp is out of town and she shows up with this visible bruise. And this is one of the few bruises you can really see. And she's like, you know, nobody, nobody knew about it. Um, I went, I thought, I just thought I was going to go and it was very quiet at the courthouse. And then I came out and there was just a mob of, so, you know, somebody had tipped somebody off and it's like, uh, yeah. Why did you go with this very visible thing on your face when you tell us that your daily routine is putting on tinted moisturizer and always making sure you do this thing because even everywhere you go, there's paparazzi. But on this day, you're going to go to the courthouse. You have a visible bruise, which is one of the most convincing bruises she has in all her sort of categories of evidence. And she comes out and she's mobbed by cameras, naturally. She also kind of slipped out that maybe her team had told TMZ. She says something like, nobody knew except TMZ. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. Go back to that part about TMZ. One one quick question. So I've, thank God, I've never had to file a restraining order. And I think they're probably often a bad idea. But in any, because it, it doesn't work, they don't really work. But if you're a celebrity, which she was, and you want to file a restraining order, is the protocol that you yourself go to the courthouse and do this? Would you not maybe call a police officer to your house or have your agent do it or have somebody else do it, especially if you are in extremis and super upset because you've been, you know, hurt or claim that you've been hurt? I, I don't I don't really know understand how getting restraining order works, but I think the idea that you need to go to a courthouse to do it doesn't I don't think that's really the way that it's done. Maybe maybe some uh, lawyer here that's that's listening to this can let us know. Maybe I'm wrong. Do you do you know, Sarah Hepla? I think you've raised a great question, and I don't know the answer to it. You know, one of the interesting things about this moment is that Johnny is out of town filming a movie, and she knows that he's out of town. But I mean, I'm just gonna I'm gonna tell you, she knew he was out of town. But on the stand, she said she wasn't really sure she knew that. You know, no, she's no, no, like, that, I don't remember. True. I that's don't remember. True. I'm not, not sure how much I knew about his schedule. No. So how did she things, get the bruise? If he's out of town, how did she get the bruise? It happened right before he left town. That's why she's filing the restraining order. He threw a phone in her face. I okay. do think this thing happened. Okay. The 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 diagnostic on this night is pretty good. The photos are not terribly convincing, but I actually find the whole thing fairly credible that he gets furious throws a phone and it hits her in the face. Now, there is a question as to whether or not she 
juiced up this whatever embellished this it. is. Embellished yeah. it. Okay. While she's going to the courthouse. She files a restraining order even though he's gone to France. Now, one of the other things that happens during this time, there was the probably one of the most probably one of the most like plot twisty exciting moments in the whole trial because you've been hearing this name james franco and everyone's sort of like is james franco gonna testify like what's going on like did james franco have a relationship with amber heard and so amber heard is on the stand and camille vasquez asks her like so i can't remember what the night is but like on this night is this the night that james franco came over to your house Remember, her house is Johnny Depp's penthouse. And she has requested to change the locks. And she says it's because she's afraid of Johnny Depp. Camille Vasquez's implication here is that she wanted to change the locks because she was having James Franco over. And it's this day. And so Camille Vasquez says, did you change the locks on this day because James Franco was coming over? And she goes, I don't remember. I really can't tell you when James came over. He was a friend. And Camille goes, well, let me refresh your memory. And they cut to security cam footage of an elevator in the penthouse where she's standing there. It's 11 o'clock at night. It's one of the more like cringy details is her standing in the elevator where she's going down and she kind of like wraps the the little like cashmere wrap around her and like gets her hair so that it's like a little bit sexier, you know, like, like, I don't, Oh, I don't want to see her get herself like James Franco ready. But then the, the elevator doors open and she disappears. And then when she comes back in, James Franco has entered our trial for the grainy security cam footage of an elevator. We can't hear what they're saying, but they both, congregate in the corner leaning into each other in a way that looks like we're gonna bone we're gonna go into the penthouse that was johnny depp's penthouse and we're gonna bone doesn't everyone make out in elevators i think that's the rule i but they didn't make out you could see that they were and that's what i was waiting for because like i love an elevator make out absolutely 100 percent. love with the right person yeah, not just with the elevator operator. <laughs> no, that would be a not just like I don't. I'm not like taking the uh, like going up to the eleventh floor and I turn to like the guy standing next to me and I'm like, "Would you like to make out, sir?" Or like, I didn't like this ride. I'm going to go back down and try again. Maybe there'll be someone else in the elevator. Um, I'm just going to keep going till I can make out. No, but I mean like with somebody that I'm having yeah. a loving relationship with. Hundred percent. And so anyway. Um, Oh, by the way, one of my favorite witnesses was Ellen Barkin. I never told you about her, but Ellen Barkin dated Johnny Depp in the 90s. And there's one point, like she doesn't say that much. That's very interesting, except that like he seems like a cool dude and he's not violent. But at one point they say like, how long was your romantic relationship with him? And she's like three to five months. And then she stops and she goes, can we change romantic to sexual? And I was like, fuck yes, Ellen Barkin. I love her. She's so she's really sexy, and isn't her voice kind of like let this now? You, let me so- tell you, <laughs> Mama's been smoking. Oh boy, Mama has been smoking the cigarettes because <laughs> like those like, and this little throaty raspy voice of mine 
you know, you go 20 years down the road and you're going to sound like Alan Barkin. She's also got that smile where like one eye kind of squints and those cute little sexy teeth. She is a hot, she is a, I haven't seen her in a while, but she is a, is a sexy, sexy woman. I thought. I'll tell you what, she's, she's cool, dude. She had white hair. She let her hair go white. It was short. It was non-fussy. She was in glasses. Her face is beautiful. She looks incredibly yeah. like untweaked and she looked cool as shit. Yeah. I was like, she did also, what was that show? I've never actually saw it, but it looked so cool. Was it called Animals where she was the matriarch of like some bad crime family with like a lot of really rascally sons? I think that's what it's called. And I just saw like promos for it and I was like, that looks like that's a cool role. But anyway, Oh, that's interesting. I, yeah, I don't even know about that. So yeah. Yeah, Ellen Barkin is cool. Back to the Amber Heard cross-examination, yeah, yeah. the James Franco moment is pretty devastating. And, you know, she is an interesting witness on stand because when she's challenged, she gets the word that comes to mind, and I don't want to throw too much shade on her because I really think she's been beat up unfairly. But the word that comes to mind is haughty. H-A-U-G-H-T-Y. Yep. She is haughty. Um, she's like, chin up like yes i guess yes yes very clear is there any disdain there or is it just now i will be the i will be the impermeable haughty slightly british person who will just she's above it she's above it she never goes like like just a human reaction would be like oh Yeah. yeah 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 that was the night yeah that's this is kind of embarrassing but yes you just showed a uh, footage of me bringing James Franco up to my private lair. That's slightly embarrassing. She doesn't. She's just like, "Yep, okay, well, yes." And well, what is uh, what does Camille Vasquez make of this? I mean, does she say, "Okay, well, let's uh, let's unpack this then"? Very, and in, in, you know, she had managed to again, like, really in a very concise manner bring out this idea that the locks were being changed because Amber okay. Heard was bringing people up to her penthouse that had been owned, that was owned by Johnny Depp. She complains repeatedly that the security will let Johnny in no matter what she says. She says she's afraid for her, for her safety. He's going to say that she doesn't want him to know that he's, she's banging other people. Quick question. So she, when you're saying this is Johnny Depp's penthouse, I'm assuming this is their marital home. This is where they live. Okay. So they live in a few places. They have a penthouse that has five different penthouses inside of it. One of the very confusing thing about the trial is you'll hear people say penthouse one, penthouse three, penthouse five. Her friends are living in one of the penthouses. Right. I remember that. One of, his artist, one of his artist buddies is living in one of the penthouses, et cetera, et cetera. So I can understand. I mean, this is your marital home. This is where all your stuff is. I mean, of course, nobody wants to have to like hightail out of yeah, there. Yeah, plus, yeah, yeah. plus, you've got your crew, like you've got your friends that are living next door and now Johnny's gone. And so it's like, you know what? I'm very comfortable here. But at the same time, at the same time, and let's just put James Franco to the side because I can totally believe she wants to change the locks and she's having an affair with him. I don't know. But if you really were like worried, even though your your spouse is in France, but you were worried that he's going to come like, I think she has the means to go stay at Chateau Marmont for a week. Exactly. Exactly. Right, whatever. I mean, this I mean, is so this, anyway, you know, it's just, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's, they, 
it will be an interesting thing to see whether she gets brought up on some perjury things. There are a couple places people on Twitter seem to be suggesting she was going to get brought up on perjury. You know, she's under investigation in Australia for having brought her dogs over and not put them through the proper quarantining procedures in 2015. This is so tiny. It's so stupid. But when you said you, you, you remembered that there was something that had to do with an airport, that's what it's about. She brought the dogs over and she didn't properly report them because she was just like, fuck you. I want my dogs. with me." You know, yeah. in a lot of ways we can call her bipolar or I'm sorry, borderline personality. Maybe it's histrionic disorder. Maybe it's PTSD. Let me tell you what this is. This is a fucking beautiful woman that has gotten away with murder for much of her life. And people give her, she is wildly entitled by the fact that she is so beautiful, among other things. But people get corrupted by that thing. It's entitlement. And then it's like you, you expect that that's, and then, and, and, you know, when you don't, like, if you're, if you're a shoplifter and you get, you don't get caught the first 17 times. Well, when you get caught the 18th time, there's going to be some umbrage there. It's like, wait, what are you talking about? I'm allowed to do this. Oh, what? Anyway, so I'm always be grateful for my stumpy Irish peasant thighs because it keeps me human. You know, otherwise yeah. I would just be too beautiful. I think we all know that. I, and I would not be able to do this podcast with you because, you know, people don't know. Sarah and I are actually looking at each other. Yeah. We will do, we'll do a video podcast sometime for you guys. But if, 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 if it weren't for those, those, those stumpy legs, you know, I, yeah. I wouldn't be able to do it because my eyes would be melting from your beauty and I'd be too jealous and I'd have to just. Exactly. So I'm, I'm thankful too, Sarah. I am. So, um, all right. What else can we talk about here in terms of her testimony? Because I think, and then. I we'll, don't we'll, know, we'll, man. I got to run because my AirPods are yeah. like running. I got the okay. little like. Do, 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 do. They're yeah, about yeah, to yeah. run out of battery, um, so it's like I'm gonna have to save it for another time. This yep. is a very fascinating, complicated case. The culture around it signals a change in Hollywood. It signals a change in media. It, it, it's a very interesting watershed case that the establishment media has abandoned, but your roving reporter has not. No, no, you have not. And because it's too dangerous for them to walk in now, but I will, I'll bet a nickel here that if it does not go Amber Heard's way, we will see lots of renting of breasts and screaming about, see, again, a rich, powerful man, you know, gets his, gets away with, you know, with bad behavior against a, a, a not powerful woman. And I'm not saying there's not something to that in many cases, or even in this case. But well, yes. it would be better if they actually got their boots on the ground right now and actually paid attention to the granular nature of what is going on here so that they could write a nuanced story, as you are, Sarah Heppala, as opposed to just like standing back, not getting their, you know, getting their 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 feet wet, and then being able to make grand pronouncements. Because that's actually not, that's not true. Okay. It's untrue to stand back and not take the time to look at the facts instead just to make some grand pronouncement. I, I am, I am hereby against that. And these are, these are complicated facts. You know, I got into a fight yesterday with one of the Johnny Depp fans because she had a very different uh, thoughts on his drinking. And I think Johnny Depp is far more dirty in this whole story than, than the TikTok narrative would have you believe. So anyway, stick with, stick with us kids. Um, We'll give you the real Do story. we have time for me to tell a 30-second story? 
before your earbuds die. So I wanted to tell the opposite of entitlement when it comes to celebrity. Um, When I would, because we talked about married with children earlier on Fox. Uh, When I was pregnant, very, very, very pregnant, um, we were the catering company I worked with. We were catering the married with children uh, party, rap party or something. It was at a bowling alley in in Hollywood. And of course, all the, everybody's bowling and it's kind of fabulous. And I'm like standing back with my eight months pregnant belly standing behind the food table. And who stood with me the whole time and talked just because he was a nice guy? Ed O'Neill. Anyway. With children. And that's, you know, that's like, that's the opposite of an entitled celebrity. It's just like a nice guy. So we've got those two. Um, okay, Sarah Hepla, uh, go, go forth, have a great day. And thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.